Stanford University. And the Stanford Graduate School of Business. At this point, I'd like to introduce our EndNote speaker uh, in the person of Thomas Gibbon. Um, Tom is the chairman of um, ECP. ECP is Emerging Capital Partners. It is the first private equity firm to raise more than a billion dollars um, to invest in companies in Africa, and they have several funds doing this. Uh, Mr. Gibbon has served on several boards, and he's currently uh, a trustee of the Center for Global Development. Uh, Mr. Gibbon received his bachelor's degree in honor with honors from Worcester in Ohio, and uh, he also got an MBA from Wharton. Um, so if you could just uh, round of applause, uh, sort of bring up uh, Mr. Gibbon. And uh, this is, oh, here? Yes. Okay. Okay, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here today at the Stanford Africa Forum. It's an honor to have shared the stage with Tom Barry and Richard Essex and others uh, that I've known for some time, and of course, with others on today's panels and in the audience that represent the really incredible people doing important work, making a difference in people's lives in Africa. I've found, and I can attest, that the community of people who care deeply about Africa is the warmest, most embracing community in the world. I thought I would begin by offering a few reflections on what it has been like to develop a private equity business focused on Africa and how things have changed over the years. My story begins in 1999. I began with my previous firm, Emerging Markets Partnership. When we looked around the world and noticed that they had set up fund management companies in all of the emerging markets, Asia, Latin America, Eastern Europe. Let's see. But there was a big blank spot on the map, which was Africa. From a personal perspective, I've been to Africa a few times. I've visited relatives there in Kenya and in Malawi. I knew the place well enough to know that nobody understood Africa, particularly Americans. We just didn't get it. So when the MP guys asked me if I'd consider leaving the Asia business, where I had been a managing director, to start the Africa business, with no promise that we would be able to raise the money or invest it, with no lifeline back to Asia should it not work out, and with no example of anyone having been successful before, I did not hesitate. I absolutely wanted to do this. I wanted to run something. I wanted to look people in the eye and say that we were going to under-promise and over-deliver and that we would always put their interests first. More than that, I didn't have a clue. As far as nobody ever succeeding before in African private equity, South Africa was an exception. South Africa's difficult history had produced a sense of financial and technological self-reliance born out of a concern that the rest of the world had an uneasy and uncertain trading and commercial relationship with them as an apartheid state. So as a number of, multi, uh, as a number of multinational businesses departed South Africa for one reason or another, the, the core skill set essential to successful private equity, that is simply, what's it worth? 
How do you value something? A dozen years ago, that, that core skill set developed in South Africa, but outside of South Africa, the rest of Af Africa was pre-frontier. For most of my friends, Africa made Cambodia look interesting. Now here I'll pause and say that the best entrepreneurs are lousy historians. Or maybe they're just unconventional thinkers. My experience with entrepreneurs is that they have the ability to gain a little altitude and see the world from a particular vantage point that is not overly influenced by what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years, let alone the last 10 or 15 minutes. To be an entrepreneur means that you're entirely comfortable acting as if the future will not be the same as the present. Entrepreneurs see time as a continuum. It moves in a way that sometimes can be predictable. It's just that most people aren't paying attention. To be an entrepreneur means that you trust trends. You understand that to be successful, you don't wait for, for governance to be perfect. You don't wait for perfect transparency. You wait for improvement. And when you have improvement, you jump. I'd like to put some perspective on the Africa story. Back when the earth was cooling and dinosaurs roamed the earth, no, actually slightly after that, because I'm thinking of the early 1990s, when I found myself living in Hong Kong, co-managing Goldman Sachs's project and structured finance group. The other guy running the group, he might have been a Stanford guy when I think about it. The other guy running the group, had gotten there a couple of months before I'd gotten there. And I remember him saying, let's divide Asia between the two of us. I'll take Malaysia, the Philippines, Thailand. You take South Korea and China. Now, I knew that I had just drawn the short stick, but I wasn't sure why. So I started making trips up to China. Back then, it was known as mainland China or big China. You don't hear that so much anymore. This is 20 years ago. There was no private property in China. There were no land titles. There were no courthouses. There were no lawyers to opine whether the title you had was filed correctly in the, in the courthouse because there, were, there, were, there was none of that infrastructure. There was no legal infrastructure associated with being able to buy and sell property. China was also very short of power. And it was this lack of electricity that everyone had predicted would be the chokehold on China's economic growth. Sound familiar? You don't hear that anymore about China. Now, we had this idea that we could monetize certain existing power plants. We'd buy an old one, enter into a purchase, uh, power purchase agreement, sell back the power, and the province or the municipality or the state could use the proceeds of the sale to build a new power plant. That's when I learned that you can't buy something if you don't know who owns it, and that communist China really had been communist. When we went around looking at power plants to buy, it was quite an experience. We looked at one built by the, Chinese, uh, by the Japanese during the 1930s occupation in Qingdao, still working, and we looked at some more recent ones. Remember, this is a time when Shanghai was still poor. It still had old buildings, didn't have a metro. When I, mean poor, when I say poor, I mean it had no money. Nobody had money. 
This was back when, when you traveled there, you had to buy your own money. You, there was money only for you, for, 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 uh, for uh, tourists, for, tra- for visitors. They had a separate currency for visitors. Um, so we were looking at these factories, and we realized how they were building factories during this time. There was, uh, uh, it was all dependent on the guy who, ha- who happened to be the, the, the plant manager, and he would call up various factories, somebody who made the generator, somebody who made the turbine, somebody who made the cables, somebody who made the, the, the transmission lines, and they'd place an order, and over a period of months or years, a train would come by, the, the door would open, they'd dump this stuff out on the site, and you'd see these engineers walking around deciding which of the pieces of the, of the electric components that happened to be like dumped in the mud could they pull out of the mud and actually make into a power plant. Complaining was not allowed. You were glad to get whatever you could get a hold of. The specifications were just work with it. Now all this has changed. When is the last time you've heard somebody say that electricity is what's going to stop the economic miracle of China? Now my dad is Czech. I've been to Prague since I was 10 years old. Back in the day, behind the Iron Curtain, the nicest retail spaces in Old Town sold plumbing supplies and bags of cement. People ratted each other out. The authorities lied about everything, including the weather. The Czech Republic is not perfect, but it is an example of people being more resilient than we might have expected, more adaptable, quick, to pick things up. Even 10 years ago in India, you couldn't buy a Coca-Cola, you couldn't open a McDonald's. 50 years or so of state socialism had brought the place to near ruin. Before the millennium, 1998, 1998, or 1999, if you landed at the Bombay airport, you would drive in, all of the billboards were uh, Barty, uh, you know, industrial fixtures. There was no consumer uh, uh, dynamic at all, no consumer uh, kind of attitude. Um, and then something happened. They got really lucky. They just got a lucky break. Y2K. Americans began to worry in 1998, that on January 1st, 2000, the traffic lights would go down. That on January 1st, you would begin to, you'd go into the bathroom and, and, the, and the, uh, you couldn't fill up your bathtub. So everybody filled their bathtubs up the night before just in case. There was a sense of corporate panic as to what was going to happen. In India, with its English-speaking engineers and entrepreneurs, and finally, government recognition that it could not plan or regulate its way out of abject poverty loosened things up and allowed privately owned companies to go after international contracts. No longer would India be a Raj economy. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now these global events were not unrelated or in any sense isolated. The knockoff effect of things working moves around the globe at varying speeds. The more monolithic your system of governance, the faster innovation happens. So China was pretty fast. India, less so. Africa, with 53 countries, will be even slower. But that's okay, because there are 53 diverse countries. And that also prevents things from unwinding all at once.
There's a certain frustration with the pace of change, but a certain stability that the changes across the continent rest on so many different civic, policy, academic, and political leaders. In this way, Africa resembles a very noisy democracy. Now, the demonstration effect of success is powerful. I just talked about China. I just talked about India. I just talked about the Czech Republic. Just as the demonstration effect of failure is equally revealing. No one looks to Zimbabwe's corrupt, power-hungry, and cynical form of government as one to emulate. And in many ways, it has remained a self-contained, one-off example of what not to do. Meanwhile, governments that are opening up their phone companies, media companies, logistics, education, power, and healthcare to market forces are creating the demonstration effects that are being replicated. Just look at banking reform measures, insurance penetration rates, and the use of mobile phones for point-of-sale transactions. The pattern, this is, this is the pattern of reform. It's creeping across neighboring countries. To me, it appears relentless. Has it become a disruptive technology? I think we all have to be a little bit more impatient. I think that the, that the part of the equation that, that we have yet to completely uh, put together is one of just being damned impatient with the pace of change. It's happening, and it will be disruptive, and it'll be good. The point is, is that the improvements in the economic well-being of billions of Chinese and Indians are not the result of simple good luck or a trip to the casino or lining up important decisions so that they are made on an astrologically auspicious date on the calendar. The Chinese and the Indians, just like the Taiwanese and the Malaysians before them, decided to allow the, the private sector to be the engine of growth. This is hard work, and it does not take centuries or decades for the benefits to be felt. And you may, in fact, begin to see even more real change in Africa over the next couple of years because of the work that has already begun. Now, if I sound optimistic, it's not because I think political leaders are necessarily becoming enlightened or practicing yoga. The private sector is more effective at creating jobs and wealth and efficiently attracting and allocating capital. Political leaders are actually well served by letting go, by getting out of the way, by redefining their mission. Uh, the suggestion here is that it's the rational, coherent thing in 2011 for political leaders, including those who desperately want to cling to power, to, prov to allow their private sectors to be the engine of growth. And I think that that's what we're seeing across Africa. Of course, that's not the whole story. Uh, oh, I can change the slide here. As Africa nears one billion people, Fiber optics encircle it. Its natural resources increase in value even in the ground. Its varied cultures focused on the family, consensus building, and respect for all members of the community no longer seems quaint or out of place, but rather suggests a way forward that makes more sense than ever to those who see Africa as having enormous potential, resiliency, and promise. Of course, that's not the whole story. For instance, 
and everyone has a little variation on this, but the current state of the African power sector is illustrative of the tremendous investment gap which has acted as a chokehold on growth across the continent. The power generation capacity of the 48 countries that comprise Sub-Sahara Africa, which together are populated by 800 million people, is roughly the same as Spain with its 45 million people. The entrepreneurs here today, you know who you are, are not overwhelmed by negative statistics when assessing Africa's future. We see the opportunities that occur when the volatile mix of capital, technology, and entrepreneurism combine, always to form something new. Rarely will it look like something that comes from a government's planning commission, or will it be part of a bureaucrat's plan with some distant year in the title. The firm I started 11 years ago has grown and is in some ways a good example of entrepreneurism in Africa. I realize that the biggest threat to an army is from its own generals who want to fight the last war and not the next war. So I'm not suggesting that our lessons learned should be applied uncritically. We took the approach that we should open the aperture as wide as possible. Why fight with one arm tied behind your back? So we defined Africa to mean all of Africa, from Cairo to Cape Town. We defined our eligible businesses as being everything that wasn't, uh, so we defined our eligible businesses as being everything that wasn't something. So no guns, no gaming, no hard liquor, but if you couldn't, you know, if, if it wasn't on the list, you could do it. We can, take, we can take control positions and we can take minority positions with influence. We can work in Francophone Africa, Anglophone Africa, and Arab-speaking Africa. We are on the ground, and we are big, at least by Africa standards. It turns out that being big is practically the best thing you can be if you want to be sustainable. I'm going to just, uh, I love these slides. These are the, who we are and where we are. We're not specialists. We're generalists. We also learned that the value creation proposition in Africa is not driven by quarterly profits. And to make it so destroys trust and suggests that you don't know what you're doing, that you don't really get Africa. Africa is full of, let me see, I have one more. Africa is full of very good businesses that have near monopolies because they've been established with strong brand names because capital is scarce, particularly when you're trying to raise it to take on a strong incumbent. Good businesses give back to their communities, and in fact, that's an important element of being able to keep a tight hold on your franchise in Africa. In Africa, good businesses partner with host communities, with their labor forces, with their suppliers, and with their providers of capital. Of course, the shareholders, the owners of the business, are central to the value proposition. But this is not a sprint. Real money is made over a long period of time, which is less likely to happen if you put a quarter's financial performance ahead of building the kind of trust which eventually fosters near monopolistic business advantages. All of us know that the telecom story in Africa has been a good one. We heard about it some today. 
When we started our business in Africa, I'll give you my, the way I tell the story, Africa had about the same number of phones as metropolitan Washington, D.C., but most of them didn't work. I was there. But looking back at those times, 10, 12 years ago, is like hearing stories from the youth of your parents. People rode horses. Women didn't vote. The phones didn't even work in the hotels for room service. Motorola thought that the way to give people dial tone was by selling $4,000 satellite phones at $10 a minute. Now Africa is telecom's fastest growing market. There are more people with mobile dial tone than there are peop in Africa than there are people in the United States of America. And there's no sign of it slowing down. Oops. I don't know what that is. I'd like to now, this is sort of a little bit on my business. I now want to, lessons about business. I'm going to give you a lesson on life, at least what I've learned. I always wonder why people don't talk about that more, what they've learned about life. I'd like to make a comment on governance, integrity, transparency, and fair play. We would rather do business with a smart, honest guy who shares our values, even if he's working in a very difficult place, than to do a deal with a shady guy working in a pristine environment. People ask me what countries I like in Africa. I don't like any countries in Africa. Or maybe I like them all. What I really care about are the people I'm doing business with. And in this regard, I treat them all the same, the same as I do my kids, including my high school senior at home. Trust but verify. I happen to be a Quaker. Yes, I'm a pacifist. My hero is Martin Luther King. I'm astonished that nonviolent conflict resolution is not the first thing that we as a society and as a leading nation of the world tries. I'm making the point because for me, personal integrity is my most important asset. I want you to know that. And I tell people when I meet them in business, right up front, I will not lie and I will not cheat. Right up front. So they remember you said it. And then throughout the relationship, you will never ask of them something that you would not ask of yourself. I don't know if that's the right thing to do or not, but I put it out there just so that there can be no mistake. And then of course, you can't make an exception just because it's convenient or even because no one will notice. I'm making a big deal about this because too many people will not do business in Africa because they think there will be corruption or that they won't be able to trust people. I can tell you that most people in Africa that we do business with are as concerned about their reputations as I am about mine. So let's not be embarrassed to talk about stuff like this. What I'm urging is that the, bright, the best and the brightest of the community of people who care deeply about Africa consider the enormous potential of the place and our individual and collective roles to rebrand Africa as the destination for sustainable investments made with patient capital by men and women who place their personal integrity ahead of financial gain. I don't claim to be able to articulate the exact manner in which we can stimulate job creation or technolo technological innovation. We will not have to invent a new, we will, ha we will have to invent a new vocabulary 
or maybe not. Perhaps we need to recognize and be willing to use the words we already know, words we know to be sufficient should we choose to live by them. Because when you do, they will resonate and good people will trust you and the gap between Africa and the BRICS that appears so significant today will, within a period of time that matters to you, disappear. So that's my speech. I uh, was hoping we could do some Q&A. Yeah. Why not Mustafa? Why not Angola, Mozambique, and others? Uh, why haven't we invested there? Um, you know, Angola is a tough, tough place. Um, we looked there. We looked at we looked at some uh, minerals there, and um, and we looked at the telecom program there, and uh, it was just. Uh, you know, I, I think I think Ethiopia and um, and Angola are are two countries, the two the two significant economies in Africa that we've just not been able to find a way to locate a business that we want to invest in and be able to support it. The the day will come. Of the 25 largest economies in Africa, we've invested in 24 of them. Altogether, we've invested in 40 countries in Africa. And the, and the one country of the top 25 we've not been able to, to get into is Ethiopia. So th there are some countries where the, the welcome mat is not yet out. Uh, you know, there's still, I think in, in the case of Angola, you know, there was so much uh, uh, wealth in the country, may I call it loot? There was so much loot in the country that when everybody got around the table to decide how to divide it up, it was just so hard it's taken them years. And until all of that gets settled out, you know, we're just observers. Mozambique has just a, been a very small, it, it, the economy is just very small. We have not been able to find anything of scale. The, the stuff that Tom Berry was talking about, multi-country approach, uh, you know, diversification, uh, uh, significant businesses, scale, you know, the, the, we, we're, you know we're, that's important to us as well. And, uh, and, and we've just had a hard time finding something to do in Mozambique. The one thing we've got, uh, we bought an energy company, um, a gas company, in, uh, that's uh, in uh, uh, Tanzania that has some uh, offshore uh, properties uh, in the bay there, uh, just, just below Tanzania and, and the Mozambique side. And we're trying to monetize some gas, and we're looking at uh, perhaps a fertilizer plant or something. But this is, this is slow going. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting country uh, uh, question, and, and China is all over uh, Africa in agriculture and, and minerals and, and uh, equity oil. Um, their approach is not a private equity approach as, as we think of it. Um, you know, it's really a sovereign-to-sovereign -sovereign approach. It's not necessarily commercial. It's, um, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing either, though. 
in, in my mind, what, what is important for Africa is that it become a more robust marketplace. And the key ingredient to a marketplace are willing buyers and sellers. And there just, weren't, there just wasn't enough around, and there weren't enough interested parties in Africa to, 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 for markets to clear, for, for values to be established. So ju- just having uh, the Chinese there, I think, in, in that way, um, makes it, it makes it, it adds some vigor to the whole, to the whole situation. I think that America, the, uh, America's policy towards Africa has been deplorable. I think the oil company's activities uh, in, in the Gulf of Guinea and, and, and uh, in, in uh, particularly in Nigeria has been deplorable. Um, I don't think that we can, it's difficult for me to say, oh, the Chinese, look at, look at how they're screwing things up when, when you know, our, the companies from the United States have exhibited a lack of, of transparency and governance for, for all the time that they've been there. I think that's changing, and I think that's improving. And perhaps it's improving in part because we have to improve in order to have some value proposition that's, that makes us that differentiates what we have to offer from what the Chinese have to offer. Um, the, uh, you know, the Indians have always been active in East Africa, the, the overseas Indian community, and... Uh, and that ebbs and flows a little bit, but that you know, it's a. Um, I think we'll see more of India over the next couple of years, um, you know, as they as, as they emulate some of the same um, positions that the Chinese have taken. Yep. Who, um, but, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, most trade still occurs between Europe and Africa. Um, all the incremental change in commercial and, you know, uh, uh, relationships and trade is, is south-south. Uh, but the, uh, if, if, you, if you look at uh, ports in Egypt, for instance, they were all on the Mediterranean. The, the, you know, the, there have only been ports on the, on, the, on the Suez so that you can't, so that you don't have to go through the, uh, uh, the canal in the last couple of years. Um, uh, before that, it was completely unnecessary because, you know, they weren't buying lamb from New Zealand. They're buying lamb from New Zealand now. They're buying magnesium from, from Australia. And, of course, they're buying everything from China and Singapore. Um, so, you know, the Europeans have a huge uh, uh, advantage with proximity, with... Uh, with uh, uh, just understanding of the place. If everybody, has everybody here been to Africa? Uh, has everybody been to Africa on business or just for pleasure, just a holiday? Because there's, you know, Europeans go to Africa all the time. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not far and it's not scary. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, you know, the United States, we're really lagging. We're really lagging in our, you know, understanding of what's going on. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but, you, you know, you pick a random couple hundred people and, and they're clueless on, on what the Africa story is all about.
punishing the wrestler. I have somebody work to the wrestler, but this needs to happen. Okay, fuck off. Yeah. We at the at the when we started our business in order to att attract investors because investors were not attracted. So in order to attract the, the early movers, the first movers, which tended to be the IFCs of the world and Proparco and Swed Fund and Fin Fund and and um, uh, the Swiss and uh, the European Investment Bank and uh, African Development Bank, Development Bank of Southern Africa, all those guys, that community. We had to essentially put them all on our investment committee, and every deal would be a, a food fight. Um, and as we, you know, that was the first 400 million, and then the next 500 million, we got about half of them off. And, and by the time we got to our third fund, we had really graduated, and they were saying, okay, you guys, you know, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to take responsibility for the decisions, and if we're on the investment committee, it will appear that we're taking responsibility. So just tell us what you've done, but don't screw it up. So we said, yes, sir. We'll take it. We'll take it from here. Yeah. Yeah, we do, um, and that's changed also in the last ten or twelve years. And you know, I can tell you that that the attitude of private equity toward Africa ten years ago, uh, because a lot of these criteria were kind of imposed externally. You know, you must use the World Bank environmental standards, and the attitude was, oh God, is here's the bureaucrats and the checklists, and they're telling us what to do, and and this and that. And it became so difficult, so, so suffocating, that we, we well, I, I, a guy told me one time when I was at, at, uh, at Solomon Brothers, he, he, one of the traders uh, uh, told me this story that when he was in Vietnam, he, would, uh, he was a sergeant and he would take his uh, guys out on patrol and um, they would walk into a, uh, a trap and you knew that it was a trap because the point, guy walking point would be shot at. And the idea was that everybody would then retreat back and that's where the real trap was because they were expecting you to, to fall back um, in, into, their, into their trap. So he learned the hard way that when the first guy goes down, you charge. And so I said, look, we're getting killed and they're expecting us to fall back. We have to charge. And um, what I meant by that was we can't play the checklist game with them. If they want us to be the most sustainable, green, private equity firm in Africa possible, let's do it. Let's just embrace it. Let's do it better than they, than they even expect. Let's take it off the table. So we hired people and we went to, you know, we trained people and we started putting it into our... Um, uh, our compensation formula, you know, kind of our, our, our uh, evaluation formula. And, uh, and we like to think that we do this really, really well now. But I can tell you the way to do it is not to see what the least you can do is. The, the way to do it is to see the most you can do. So uh, I, think it's, I think anybody who looks at Africa and doesn't want that to be part of their brand, that is so 1980s. Did I show that? Not Is that what's up there? Oh. Uh, um, there's this perception that uh, private equity firms talk 
question in Africa, largely funded by the GFI. Um, and do you see more profit-minded investors, maybe endowments, not foundations, entering to the mix? They have to. They have to. And these are... Um, these are our investors. Adia, of course, is a sovereign wealth fund, so they're big guys. Um, IFU, they're Danish. Um, we, we, the Danes helped us with a couple of uh, insurance companies in Northern Europe, and, and so that diversified our funders. Breit is a fund of funds in South Africa. Um, OPIC is the US government, uh, RMB. Um, so we're... We're okay with where we are, but it, it, if, we're, if we're going to grow and if the whole sector is going to grow, if real money is going to be invested in Africa, the, the, the development institutions are pretty much tapped out. And they're also very difficult to form relationships with over a long period of time because um, people change, the politics change. You, you know, uh, in, in England, right now, the CDC, the Commonwealth Development Corporation, is being told to get out of the business of providing private equity funds to, uh, to uh, or providing funds to private equity fund managers uh, because the returns were too high. That's what they said, the returns were too high. The, the, this, the, the, how can you have high returns and be doing development work? So it's like, and, and then the complaint was, uh, you know, the example, the, 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 like the, the, the um, um, the scandal was that uh, they had invested in a shopping center in Lagos, you know, an air-conditioned shopping center. It's like Africans don't shop? <laughs> what the hell? I mean, talk about a job creation engine. So, you know, there's just a fundamental misunderstanding that will rattle around Parliament from wherever you are as to, you know, as to what really works. And so, you know, the big firms like ours, we just have to wean ourselves from a dependency on, um, what does uh, Warren Buffett call it? Uh, uh, d depending on the kindness of strangers. You know, we, we just can't depend on the kindness of strangers. We, we, we ha it's all commercial. You know, it, it's all, you, you, know, we, we, you know, we can compete, Africa can compete and hopefully we know enough about what we're doing that we can, we can manage funds in Africa that can compete with, with uh, returns, however you want to measure those, double bottom line, triple bottom line, or just one bottom line, that, that, we, uh, you know, that we can still do fine. I'm going to go back here. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, a, it's a very good point that the, that the financial sector, the financial uh, businesses, leasing companies, you cannot have a viable um, commercial building sector. You're not going to have a, a, a really nice downtown if you don't have insurance companies. Insurance companies are the logical investors for long-term real estate plays. And so if you don't have insurance, you don't, you don't have 
you, you don't have investment. And, and you go to Lagos and you can see you don't have very many nice buildings. It's very, very difficult to, to find anything like a, you know, I forget, how, how do you measure it, five stars or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, anything reasonable that anybody would, well, anything comparable to where a similar business would be operating in, in the United States. Um, so, uh, but banking in particular has been a, a business where um, there have been enormous profits. You deposit money in Africa and you're paid zero. And, you know, the cost of funds, the cost of deposits to banks are zero. And then they do trade finance deals with uh, Air France. And, you know, there's really very little, you know, at-risk capital that's, that's uh, being put to work. So we, we bought a bank. It's, uh, it's the incredibly unimaginative name of a financial bank, FB. And so we have a contest now to rename it. But the... Um, you know, we, we view as a long-term play the banking industry as being one where there will be enormous change and, and um, where regulatory behavior has improved. Capital uh, requirements have gone up. You have, you, you have situations now almost everywhere where there are fewer banks being regulated by more um, professional uh, regulators. Um, uh, and, and, and so I, I hope it works out better. Nigeria is a whole, we can write a book about the Nigerian situation, but, uh, you know, they'll find their way as all, you know, they'll, they'll get through that as well. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, two questions. You don't only have to answer one. one can I decide which one to answer? Exactly. Okay. So the first one is, um, knowing what you know now, is there something in the past that you would like to have done differently? And the other question, looking ahead, uh, tell us about um, where you would like to Okay. Well, I only look ahead. I don't have a rearview mirror. Um, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I used to be, for a long time I was the CEO of this company, and I promoted myself to chairman, um, which was like promoted myself into total irrelevancy. So I'm on the investment committee and occasionally I get to make a speech in California or someplace like that. Um, but I, uh, and maybe somebody here, a couple of people know this, but um, last year I, um, in July, I uh, decided to follow a lifetime dream of mine. Dream, I guess it's a dream. And uh, so I've become the headmaster of a Quaker school in, uh, outside of Washington, uh, 600 kids, www.ssfs.org, if you want to see it. I have a blog. So, um, so, um, uh, so that's what I want to do at the end of my career. I want to, I want to make this the, a really, really good school. Yeah. Well, Ethiopia is booming, uh, and it, with, with uh, its internal uh, capital and its internal resources, and it will hit a wall. And that wall is disguised because growth has been so robust and, and, uh, and so significant over a, a number of years now. But Ethiopia may be one of the few, you know, out of 53 countries, probably 51 of them have privatized their mobile phones. Um, 
Ethiopia may be the only one who hasn't. I think Ethiopia is maybe the only one who doesn't have a private bank operating, uh, uh, or if it is operating, uh, it's it. A criteria is that it's 100% owned by Ethiopians. Um, it, you know, there's there's just precious few ways in which we can that that we've found to develop joint ventures or to 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 find businesses that that interest us that um, where the uh, regulatory behavior accommodates a significant influential foreign investor. And I think that's going to change. And it, look, you know, I mean, the politics of the place, we can debate that too, but the economic, um, from a very low base, you know, Ethiopia has rallied. So I, I'm not going to say, oh, Ethiopia screwed it up. They haven't, you know, changed as quickly as other people. Maybe there's just been so much internal capacity to, uh, of, of capital and even know-how to be put to work. I'm just saying that's finite. And, and, and the next booster, you know, is going to have to be something we'll give in that country. We are we're big investors now. I mean, we've gotten big, and so um, maybe not always in in an initial tranche, but we'll be looking at thirty million and above. That's a good question. I've not been asked that question before. And, um, you know, there's a whole philosophy on compensation um, that, that firms in the financial business have to decide what kind of firm they are. And we have decided to pay our people really well and encourage them to give their money away and, and to, do, to do the right thing. And so as a firm, we, um, there are maybe half a dozen things that we do. Um, uh, mostly around education. Um, we sponsored a, uh, this lady came to us and said um, that she had been doing some, she's worked at the Smithsonian and she said, I'm, I'm writing a book about photography, the history of photography in Africa. And everyone believes that, that, uh, the, that the early photography in Africa was Europeans taking pictures of Africans. And it turns out that uh, Africa embraced photography Immediately, all kinds of entrepreneurs and, and uh, uh, studios were set up. There's a whole, you, you know, interesting history and archives. Um, but I need some money. And we were so touched by that. We, she got to us. And so, uh, and so we sponsored her book. Um, but, but generally, people pick out things that they want to do, and then they support them. You know, the, when we started the business, we really didn't know what was going to happen with exits. And, um, and so, as a result, we sold everything, almo almost everything we sold too quickly. And then, we, you know, we sold it and we'd say, oh, man, we made two times money. That's fabulous trade or 25% IRR, just like what we told the investors. 
And then the bozos we sold it to would like double and triple again, and we were thinking, what? Why did we do that? And so we, we sort of began to understand that if you run a good business in a transparent manner that, that creates real value from what it does, I mean, it, it's provides us, it provides dial tone, it provides insurance, it provides clean water, it provides something that, that people need or want, that, um, that, uh, that, that somebody will buy it. There will be a local institution, uh, the Moroccans, you know, somebody will find it interesting. So the issue for us has not been exits. The, I- the issue for us has been um, finding like-minded people to provide capital alongside of us or, or even senior to us, I mean, whether it's bank loans or whatever, you know, shoulder to shoulder, um, that can grow the company to the point that we want to exit. So, the, you know, the issue, selling a good company in Africa is really easy. Um, it, may not be on, it may not be an IPO, but, you know, there will be somebody, unless it's, I mean, if you're in a significant industry doing something important and you're doing it better than anyone else in your host community, you can sell that company. But to get it to there, you're going to, you know, you need oxygen. And sometimes the place, you know, doesn't have enough oxygen. Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. This is a fair question. And, and uh, you know, uh, I'm asked from time to time by somebody in the U.S. government. I mean, I, I live in Washington, so, you know, they'll come by and Millennium Challenge or OPIC or XM Bank or, or you know, a congressional committee of some kind. And they'll say, look, you're, you know, you're investing in Africa. You're on the ground. What can we do to help you? Or, you know, what should American policy be? And it reminds me, they have a hard job. I have an easy job. I mean, finding a good business, that's relatively easy. But actually being able to influence you, you know, long-term policy development uh, along the transmission corridor between Tanzania and Kenya and up into Uganda. So you know, we're... We've kind of kept a, it's not that we've kept a low profile, it's just we've, we've made the determination that we don't, we don't know. Um, you know, we try to lead by example, but in terms of helping, like for instance, we talked a little bit about China today and about power. And in the World Bank has sort of disengaged from China because China graduated. But has, have you, has anybody ever heard the World Bank or anybody say, well, China's graduated because of these successful programs that the World Bank implemented, so let's implement them in Africa? You never hear that. It's almost like nobody knows how China did it. They, they didn't have enough power, now they do. And even in India, you know, Dabal and the, the Maharashtra and, you know, Enron and all that crap was coming down. And, and, and then suddenly, you, you know, the whole social construct of, um, I, I like to think of it this way, there's two kinds of countries in the world, rich and poor. 
There are also two kinds of electric systems in the world, those that subsidize users and those that don't. The ones that don't are the rich countries, and the ones that do are the poor countries. And, and I think that it, they, they, they may be actually linked, that you remain poor if people don't, you know, if you subsidize all of the farmers in India, then you don't have enough le- uh, electricity to, to do anything else with. And so fundamentally, there has to be a change in the social contract. The social contract in Africa today is electricity is the right of everybody. We're the government, so we're going to intervene and make sure that the social contract is upheld and that nobody cheats you, and so we're going to run the electric system. And the result is nobody, nobody has electricity. As opposed to the mobile telephones, where basically the government said, if you want to buy a toy... You know, in England, you, you know, the rich people, you know, when you fly through England, if you want to buy a toy and, 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 and duty-free and bring it back here, that's okay. We're not going to intervene and, and, and protect you from the, from the, from the charges, for, you know, from, from the, uh, the, you know, for getting dial tone. And, and because we don't feel that our social contract goes that far, we will protect the labor unions associated with the fixed lines. So now there are no fixed lines because they were all protected, and there's 450 million mobile phones. And so the government needs to get out of the electricity business is basically what needs to happen there. But anyway, I can't tell, you know, we're, we're just looking for businesses. The way I put it was, we don't want to invest in the post office, but we'll invest in FedEx. I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Gibeon and Brett Calhoun is about to present with a gift. Thank you. We have so now we've come to the close of the conference. Um, I'd like to say thank you once again to all our speakers, um, the panelists, and our moderators for um, doing such a great job. Thank you again to those of you who attended and engaged and asked great questions. I was in several of the panels, so I definitely appreciated the discussions that we had. Um, and I also wanted to take this time to briefly thank our sponsors again for making this possible. Um, some of our main sponsors were Bain, BCG, Cisco, um, and at Stanford University, the GSC, the ASSU, um, the Business School, and um, also Stanford University broadly. So, um, and finally, and very importantly, I want to thank the organizers. I had a great team behind me. Um, I can't name all the people. There's a lot of people working today, volunteering, making sure that you know, everyone knew where to go, that you guys had food, <laughs> that um, put in a lot of time even just playing the conference. They were the reason that it started at 11 and not 8 a.m. So um, I hope you appreciate that. And yeah, so just can we have a round of applause for everybody. And lastly, just some logistics. Um, We are having reception. I know our website said six for a while. It's actually at 6.30. Um, If you're planning on on coming, it's at um, the Black Community Service Center. And um, in your program, I think like the first or second page, it has the address. um, And you can actually either walk or drive over there. You can walk and cut through campus or drive. And we have maps on the same table that you checked in at. There's actually a bunch of maps there. Um, So you can pick up one of those. Both where you are right now is marked, circled in red, and where the Black Community Service Center is is circled in red. So um, hopefully, if you're coming, you'll be able to make your way there at 6.30. Um, Thank you.
For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.